This talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So good morning. So this is from Fukan Zazengi. The way is basically perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent upon practice and realization? The Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. What need is there for concentrated effort? Indeed, the whole body is far beyond the world's dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from one, right where one is. What is the use of going off here and there to practice? And yet, if there is the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. Suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to escalate the very sky. One is making the initial, partial excursions about the frontiers, but is still somewhat deficient in the vital way of total emancipation. Need I mention the Buddha, who was possessed of inborn knowledge? The influence of his six years of upright sitting is noticeable still. Our Bodhidharma's transmission of the mind seal. The fame of his nine years of wall sitting is celebrated to this day. Since this was the case with the saints of old, how can we today dispense with negotiation of the way? You should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech, and learn the backward step that turns your light inward to illuminate the self. Body and mind of themselves will drop away, and your original face will be manifest. If you want to attain suchness, you should practice suchness without delay. So good morning. Uh, my name is Yunin. I use he and him pronouns, and I've seen a number of you here before, but there's some new faces. And so I, I wanted to, this text, what I, what I just read is the, uh, it's maybe the first third of this uh, text. It's, a, it's short, it's about two pages long. And as I said, it's called Fukan Zazengi, uh, which translates to uh, Universal Recommendations of Zazen for All People, which is a wonderful title. This is uh, written by a, a 13th century Japanese uh, Zen master named Dogen, who I'm going to say uh, quite a bit about, actually. Um, and this is the first third of, of, this is Dogen's beginning instruction. So for those of you who just had beginning instruction upstairs, uh, uh, this, what I read to you is the first part of, of Dogen's version of it. So I don't, you know, when I do beginning instruction, I, I usually start out with just a little bit of context about what, what this is. And um, before we get into that, the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of actually 
Zazen. And the part that I just read is sort of like the first, I think, of the, the preamble of Dogen's beginning instructions. I was going to look at the whole thing, but I, as I started looking at it, I realized this is just so rich. You know, I could, I, I, I probably could have taken just a few sentences and, and spent the whole talk on it. But um, so it goes. Um, so, so let me say just a little bit about Dogen. I, th I thought it would be nice to, I think, my impression is it's been a while since, since anyone spoke, at, you know, a little bit about Dogen's life, so I thought I would do that. In a sense, I feel like, you know, all of you here, by, by virtue of coming here this morning and sitting a period of Zazen, in a sense, you've already met Dogen um, by turning to face your own heart-mind. Uh, that was the real heart of Dogen's teaching, of what he spent his life for. But I think maybe a, a formal introduction can be helpful as well. So I'll try that. So the, the full, his full, full Buddhist name is, is Ehe Dogen. You, you, there's a couple, there's sometimes honorifics. He's sometimes referred to as uh, uh, Koso Joyo Daishi. But Ehe Dogen is his, his Buddhist name. It means, Ehe means eternal peace or eternal tranquility. And Dogen means source of the way, source of the, of the Tao in Chinese, Do in Japanese. And uh, so Dogen lived uh, from 1200 to 1253, um, and he was the founder of, of the Soto uh, Zen lineage. Well, I'm sorry, in Japan. He, the, the Soto lineage had existed in China for several centuries before that, but he was the one who brought it to Japan and really established it there. And, and so we understand ourselves here as a, as a Soto temple, Soto lineage. So Dogen is sort of like the great-great-great-great-many-times Dharma grandfather of all of us practicing here. Um, and he was, he was really a remarkable human being. The more I um, uh, look into him, the more just, um, uh, I don't know, a gratitude I have that to, to be able to receive the teachings of such a person um, you know, he had a, seems a very profound realization of the Buddha Dharma, uh, but also he was just intellectually brilliant, uh, a, a sort of poetic genius, really. Um, I remember that, that Myotai Sensei, who was the former abbot here, uh, she sometimes referred to him as a, a, a mystic powerhouse poetic fireball, which uh, is a nice way of putting it. Um, a Sangha member I'm, I'm friendly with who teaches uh, medieval Japanese history uh, once said to me that, uh, he said, Dogen is sort of like uh, James Joyce, but with green tea instead of Guinness. <laughs> you know, he, he pushes language really to the breaking point. Uh, he, he turns it inside out and upside down and then takes it apart and puts it back together. Uh, it's really a... A, a dazzling display. Uh, and, and sometimes it's a little bit unapproachable or it seems like really abstruse. Um, Dogen can be difficult. But um, uh, 
You know, Daido Roshi and, and Shugen also have, have said many times, I've heard them say, and, and this is sort of my experience, is that Dogen is speaking simply and directly to the part of us that's awake and clear. And when it, when it seems obscure, it's just maybe that we're not so much uh, in, in touch with that part of ourselves. So it, it requires a bit of patience and trust sometimes to, to get used to Dogen. Um, you know, we say, dark to the mind but radiant to the heart. Uh, I think that's very true of Dogen. And this, this text, Fukan Zazengi, is, is really a, a great place to start with, with Dogen. It's, it's comparatively uh, simple. And just a little bit about my own... I, I find Dogen sometimes frustrating or bewildering also. Um, and over the years I found there's a couple ways, you know, I'll sometimes just, if there's a text that really interests me, I'll, I'll just chant it over and over and over and make it a daily practice or write it out by hand. You know, I find this really useful. It's a way of uh, sort of slipping under the radar of the, the sort of intellectual or, or rational linear part of the mind and sort of taking the text in and embodying it in a more direct way. And it still, a lot of the times, doesn't make sense. But surprisingly, I find that sometimes years later, a phrase or a, 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 some passage from Dogen will just uh, bloom in, in, in my mind, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of say, oh, okay, I see what he was getting at, I think. Uh, but it's, it's very mysterious. It happens sometimes years later. It happens on its own schedule. So I find I just have to, to, to dig in and then just trust. So Dogen lived in a, a transitional period of, of Japanese history towards the end of the, um, the Heian period and the beginning of the, the Kamakura. So this was a time when the old uh, aristocracy, the power of the aristocracy was fading and, and the, uh, the, the military class, the samurai, uh, was in the ascendancy. And, and becoming more the center of political and cultural power. Uh, Dogen was from an old aristocratic family. Uh, supposedly he was a, a ninth generation descendant of one of the, the Japanese emperors. Um, it said that his father, uh, Michichika, was a, um, uh, a general and a chancellor of the, the imperial court. Um, and belonged to a powerful, one of the powerful um, um, clans, the Minamoto clan. Dogen's father died when he was two, and so he didn't have much memory of him. His mother was, was of another powerful clan, the Fujiwara clan, and um, he was very close to his mother, apparently. She really, uh, it seems, encouraged his education early on in the Chinese classics. But, but she also died when he was young, when he was seven. And this was a very pivotal experience for him. Apparently on her deathbed, she implored him when he was old enough to, to become a Buddhist monk, to, to ordain. And he, he, he wrote later, he said that he, he experienced deeply impermanence, seeing the incense smoke rise at his mother's funeral service. So he was adopted by an uncle who was the, um, the chief advisor to the emperor. And he was being groomed for a job in the court. 
and so this also continued his, his classical education. But he kept his mother's, um, he took his mother's words to heart, and at age 12, he slipped out of the, the household and uh, asked to be ordained as a Tendai monk on Mount uh, Hie. And later he wrote that he said to the priest who ordained him, he said, when my mother was dying, she told me to leave home and study the way. I also think I should do so. I don't want to be involved in the mundane world. I just want to leave home and be a monastic. I want to be a monastic to requite my debt to my mother and my grandmothers. So he did that. His uncle was apparently quite disappointed, but he began a systematic study of the, the Buddha's sutras, and he, he read everything that was available to him. He was voracious about study. And as he did so, he kept coming back. There was a, a teaching. One of the Tendai teachings was the, the doctrine of original enlightenment, it's called. And in short, this was the teaching that the way is perfect is complete. The way is perfect and complete. And all sentient beings are innately endowed with the Buddha nature. And Dogen took this in and he kept coming back to it and it was, it got stuck in his craw. He, uh, because he had doubts and, and specifically as he, as he later put it, his doubt was, he said, if all sentient beings possess the Buddha nature and the Tathagata, that is the Buddha, exists without change, why must people develop the aspiration for enlightenment and practice vigorously in order to realize the truth? And so this, this doubt that he had only grew, and he couldn't resolve it, and he was carrying with it, it with him for many years. He began to ask the, uh, the, the priests and teachers on Mount Hie, um, but no one could respond to his satisfaction. And eventually, one of the priests there recommended that he um, look into the, uh, the Zen school, uh, which had recently, just recently been introduced to Japan from China by a Rinzai teacher named Esai. And so Dogen did. He visited this temple, which was called Kenenji, and uh, he asked to be ordained as a monastic there, and he was. And then he studied with Esai's successor, Myozen, for a number of years. And it, it seems that he, he completed his training in the Rinzai curriculum there, but he was still not satisfied. This old doubt that he had was still present. And so in, in the year 1223, when he was 23 or 24, he left with Myozin on a pilgrimage to China. As he said later, he said, um, in search of the authentic teachings, I resolved to entrust this transient body to the wind and the waves. And so he sailed for China, which was a fairly dangerous undertaking at that time, and made it. And China was at the time the, the real center of, of Chan, or Zen Buddhism. And Dogen, when he was there, he met a number of teachers and, and practitioners. Um, but after two years, he was still um, not satisfied. He was still disappointed in what he had 
had seen. His search for, for an authentic teacher, um, he felt had not been successful. And so he was on the point of, of, of deciding to return when he heard that there was a new abbot at this uh, temple, uh, at the Tiantong Monastery. And someone recommended that he visit this abbot, so he did. Uh, this, this person's name was uh, uh, Tiantong Rujing, or Tendonyojo, whose name we chanted this morning. And he emphasized the practice of just sitting, of shikantaza, of just zazen. And it seemed that he combined, he was very rigorous in terms of the training, but, but personally very warm and could be very gentle at the same time. And Dogen was immediately struck by this person and impressed with him and asked to receive the teachings. And he decided to remain at Mount Tiantong. Soon after that, uh, he was in the, the intensive summer training period. And the, uh, so Dogen had been training for, I don't know what, 15 years, 16, 20 years, a long time at this point, very intensively, single-mindedly. And they were sitting in pre-dawn zazen, in the darkened zendo. And the monk next to Dogen fell asleep during zazen. And suddenly, uh, from the darkness, uh, Tendon Yojo shouted at the monk who fell asleep, when you study under a master, you must drop off body and mind. What is the point of single-minded, intense sleeping? And when Dogen heard this, he had a great awakening. Um, he got up and went to the abbot's room and offered incense to the Buddha. And Tendon Yojo saw this. It was a little bit unusual. And he said, why, why are you burning incense? Dogen said, body and mind have been dropped off. Tendo said, body and mind dropped off. They dropped off body and mind. Dogen said, this may be only temporary. Please don't approve me arbitrarily. And Tendo said, I am not. Dogen said, what is, it that, what is that which isn't given arbitrary approval? And Tendo said, body and mind dropped off. And Dogen bowed, and Rujin, Rujin, uh, Tendo said, dropping off is dropped off. So he stayed two more years to study with Tendo Nyojo, and then decided to return to Japan. It's not clear... It, you know, the, the record is a little bit patchy in places, and it's not clear. Maybe uh, Tendo um, encouraged him to go back to, to teach in Japan, or maybe maybe there were other reasons. Tendo died the year later, and Dogen did return. And in those days, it was um, traditional when someone went on a pilgrimage uh, to bring back Buddha images or relics or sutras, some sort of teaching. And so people asked Dogen, you know, what did you, what did you bring back from your pilgrimage in, in the land of Song? And his response that, he, he, that we have from the record later, he said, I simply verified that the eyes are horizontal and the nose, are ver- nose is vertical. I cannot be misled by anyone anymore. I have returned home empty-handed. There's not even a hair of Buddhism in me. Now I pass the time naturally. The sun rises in the east every morning and the moon sets in the west. 
When the clouds part, the mountains appear. When the rain passes, the mountains bend down. What is it, after all? And so this, this text that I started with, the Fukan Zazengi, comes from this time. It was one of the first things that he wrote. Um, he wrote it for a lay person, actually, um, for one of his lay disciples, very shortly after he returned from China. At this point, he didn't have a temple of his own or a, a monastic community. He was just trying to, to get his, uh, I guess, feet on the ground. So let me just go through this a little bit. The way is basically perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent upon practice and realization? The Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. What need is there for concentrated effort? So this is, again, this is Dogen's great doubt. If all sentient beings possess the Buddha nature, then what is the need for vigorous practice? Why do we go through so much? The robes, the temple, the service positions, the forms, the getting up early, the difficulty of just turning to face your mind over and over. Why is it necessary if you already possess the Buddha nature? You know, it's good to ask, ask oneself, do I have a question? What is my question? I've experienced this as a sort of, it's like a, something in your throat. You can't swallow it down, you can't spit it out. You know, you can't put it down, and you can't seem to dispose of it. You could say, why come here on a Sunday morning? There are a hundred other things you could be doing. Sleeping, in bed, having brunch with some friends, getting some work done, making art, spending time at the beach, reading. What is it that brings us to the cushion? Maybe it's something you can articulate, maybe not, or maybe not right now. I know in my case, it, it took a long time before I could start to articulate my question. And it's, it's not necessarily something that you can formulate in words. It's, it's more something that's formulated with your whole body and mind. You know, when someone becomes a, a formal student of, of this order and asks for the teachings, there's a couple of what we call barrier gates that, that people pass through. And one of them is you meet with a group of um, senior practitioners called the Guardian Council. And they basically ask you, why? You know, why do you, why do you want to do this? There's so many other things that, that you could be doing. And I remember when, when I went to the Guardian Council, when I decided that I want to become a student, and I was asked this question, I, I froze. I, I couldn't express it. It's like I couldn't speak. I wanted more than, I knew that I wanted more than anything to delve more deeply into Zazen. But I couldn't express it. You know, I think all of it kind of scared me a little bit, or more than a little. But I was drawn to it too. You know, it still scares me sometimes, the practice. But there was something that I trusted. And you just need a little bit. You know, what is it that, that you trust beyond your, your fear, your doubt? 
your insecurities, your virtues, your faults, your successes, your failures. What is it underneath? Just trust that. Indeed, the whole body is far beyond the world's dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from one, right where one is. What is the use of going off here and there to practice? It's, it's sometimes said that the role of a Zen teacher is like selling water beside the river. At the same time, for many of us, I think having a teacher is absolutely necessary. From the very beginning, the Buddha taught the three treasures are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha is, in one sense, the embodiment of the teacher. The Dharma is the teachings, and the Sangha is the community of practitioners. In my experience, all three of these are absolutely necessary. Um, they keep me accountable. Dada Roshi used to talk about um, Bujizen. He used to warn about Bujizen, which he called, said was self-styled Zen. Uh, everything I do is Zen. And I can hear him still. When he would talk about that, he would then say, wrong. He'd say, uh, to stand on the sidelines merely thinking about practice is Bujizen. For the teachings to come alive, they have to be lived with the whole body and mind. In other words, we have to practice them in, you know, where the rubber hits the road in everyday life. I was thinking, it's, it's, it's not that everything I do is Zen is completely wrong, but we have to really dive into that so deeply that it's kind of, we have to become so intimate with it that it disappears in a sense. So everything disappears. I disappears, do disappears, is disappears, and Zen disappears. Dogen says, when sages and wise ones enter the mountains, no trace of their having entered remains. There is only the life of the mountains. But we should also be careful. Um, practice doesn't mean tying ourselves up in knots. It can be very dynamic and vigorous sometimes, but other times it's just very soft and gentle. And we have to be able to discern, we have to learn to discern what's needed in any particular situation. And we learn by trying and making mistakes. And yet, if there is the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. Speaking of mistakes, this is another opportunity to, to get tied up. You know, we can think, uh-oh, I better not screw it up. I better not make a mistake. One false move when I've had it, you know. I was thinking, it's, it's kind of like saying, uh, don't think of a pink elephant. And we can, we can freeze up here if, we, if we're coming from a place where we want to get it right or we want to be perfect. Because we're human beings. That's not who we are. We make mistakes. But when we let go of the idea of getting it perfect, we see we don't have to manufacture anything. But when you do screw it up, or better, 
um, well, when you do screw it up, which, which will happen, I find that it's helpful just to, if I can just remain curious, you know, what's it like when my mind is lost in confusion, anger, doubt, despair, pettiness? Do you get angry with yourself for getting angry? And then get angry with yourself for getting angry with yourself for getting angry? You know, that's a, it's a, that's a black hole. You can spend a lot of time swirling around in there. I have. Or any other um, emotion, whatever it is that tangles you up. We say this as putting another head on the top of the one you already have. We don't have to play that game, no. You start to see that we can just let anger be angry. Just let grief grieve. Just let boredom be bored. You don't have to indulge, and we don't have to suppress. These mind states, they're all impermanent. So if one that, that gets under your skin comes to visit, offer it a cup of tea, and when it decides to go, wish it well, and return to your practice. Suppose, suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one's enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to escalate the very sky. One is making the, iner- the initial partial excursions about the frontiers, but is still somewhat deficient in the vital way of total emancipation. So what about when, when I have an opening or an insight? When someone praises you, oh, I really, that was, you did a really nice job, that was great. When you're at the top of your game and everything falls into place, do we revel in it, run with it, or maybe keep it at arm's length? It's just a matter of time before everything falls apart, you know. Fear your own success or your own virtue? They don't know what I'm really like, you know. Not all mind states are impermanent, so it's the same thing. When, when good fortune or success visit you, offer it a cup of tea. When it decides to pack up and go, wish it well and return to your practice. Whatever level of understanding you attain, Dogen says, we should study exhaustively and then study still more. Need I mention the Buddha who is possessed of inborn knowledge? The influence of his six years of upright sitting is noticeable still. Our Bodhidharma's transmission of the mind seal, the fame of his nine years of wall sitting is celebrated to this day. Since this was the case with the saints of old, how can we today dispense with negotiation of the way? The Buddha is Shakyamuni, of course, who practiced diligently for six years after leaving home before he awakened upon seeing the morning star. But within the Mahayana, it's also understood that he had practiced for countless lifetimes before he was born as Shakyamuni Buddha. And so he had innumerable kalpas of practice behind him. Bodhidharma is the Indian monk who brought Zen from India to China. And after he had a brief encounter with the emperor, he went to a cave above the Shaolin Temple and sat zazen facing the wall for nine years. I think the point 
Dogen is making here is that zazen continues even after realization. We don't practice zazen in order to get realization. We practice because we are originally enlightened. You should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech, and learn the backward step that turns your light inward to illuminate the self. Body and mind of themselves will drop away, and your original face will be manifest. If you want to attain suchness, you should practice suchness without delay. The backward step he speaks of is zazen. I was taking this in and thinking about it. You know, have, have you ever tried walking backwards for any length of time? It's just as an experiment. It's, I, I tried it last night. I went outside and was doing it. You know, it's just viscerally unnerving. You, you can't see where you're going. It, it goes against so much of our embodied tendency to want to, you know, I, and I don't recommend that you do this anywhere near traffic or anything like that, but, but it just, it, it's an interesting thing to try. It, it's, it, you, I, I, I was seeing that. I can see why this is such a good metaphor for Zazen, because we are just, we don't know. We just don't know in Zazen. You know, our tendency, it's so strong, is to grasp at what we like, to push away what we don't like, and to ignore everything else. That's so deep in us. And when we sit down and practice and turn the light inward, as Dogen says, we start to see that there, there's, there is no inside and outside. There's only, as he says, the life of the mountains. You know, we can always practice this, whatever this is. The sore knee, the inhalation, the sound of traffic outside, the painful memory. There's no, there's no need to wander off here and there to practice. You just practice this. We don't need to wait for a better opportunity. Just see the thought, let it go, and return to your practice. So in closing, I was, I wanted to share this, this it's a short poem, it's a haiku. Um, and I think it, it kind of resonated with me about, about Dogen's doubt that he's talking about in this, this whole first part of Fukan Zazengi. So this is by Basho, who is the, probably the best-known haiku poet in Japan. And he, incidentally, he was also a, um, a serious Zen practitioner as well. So he says, In Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo, I long for Kyoto. I, I thought maybe I would say something about this poem, but now I realize you know, it would be a shame to kill it. <laughs> so... I'll just read it one more time. In Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo, I long for Kyoto. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.